0: You're listening to The Formed Book Club, from Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute.
1: Welcome, everyone, to The Form Book Club. We're happy to have with us as our guest on our final discussion of this wonderful book, Mercy, by Father Dan Maloney. We actually have Father Dan Maloney here with us. Uh, and I'm a little embarrassed because uh, Father was sent questions by Joseph Pierce. By the way, Joseph still has his beard on because he's going to wear that until he can go to Mass publicly. Uh, my hair is uncut until I can go to the barbershop publicly. In any event, uh, when you responded, Father Maloney, to the questions which Joseph sent to you, uh, you said that you'd listen to our broadcasts here, uh, and that made me fearful because I had, had a few quibbles during uh, our discussion about a couple of things in your book, which is a wonderful book, uh, but now we're gonna have to, I'm going to have to face the music as you hear yourself to defend yourself. It's so much easier to quibble when the author isn't here. Vivian Dudo is with us here. She's on the floor below because we're keeping real separation in San Francisco. Joseph Pierce is as far away as we can get him. He's 3,000 miles away in South Carolina. And uh, Father Maloney, you're in Massachusetts, right?
0: I'm in the Boston area, yeah.
1: In the Boston area. Well, that's in Massachusetts. This isn't the last time I heard. Okay, that's good. Uh, I'm going to turn this thing over to Joseph then to kind of uh, direct our discussion with our author here.
2: Always a delight to have uh, the authors with us in our form Book Club. Um, And uh, welcome, uh, Father Maloney. Well, thanks
0: for having me. This sounds like it's going to be fun. I've been, as I said, I've been uh, listening to you guys and I've been very pleased. It's been interesting for me to see uh, how you guys react to the book. And uh, largely you've been saying things that I wanted people to get. Like you've been getting out of the book what I put in there, I thought. So I'm kind of happy with that.
1: So, Joseph, how would you like to lead this off?
2: It seems that one of the the basic premise upon which your book is is based is that we should not be separating mercy from justice, but that, on the contrary, the two need to be seen as dovetailing each other. Um, so, one thing you argue is that mercy must be ordered towards justice. Would you like to explain? exactly how you see mercy being ordered towards justice or the common good? Part of it is just is that uh, if you oppose
0: justice and mercy, then quickly mercy is unjust and justice is merciless. If justice is a description of God, then to be merciful would be somehow against God. So you, you have, they can't be opposed to each other. That's the way for them to work together. And so uh, the the big way that they work together is that uh, justice is the word you use to describe brightness. To, I mean, the, when Aristotle talks about justice, uh, he says There's justice uh, is the name for every, th- every virtue, uh, could be called justice. So uh, if you say that justice is right order, doing God's will, then mercy can't be opposed to that, otherwise it be a bad thing. So if you really focus on mercy, one of the things that I realized when I started studying this was that if you just focus on mercy, you realize that uh, unless mercy's bad, Justice has to be defined in a certain way in relationship to mercy. So you can't just go about defining justice in its own. Um, and one of the chapters of the book, I talk about justice-only politics and some of the problems of not having a, uh, a theory of what happens when things go wrong. If you have a bad theory of mercy, you end up having disorder in society because you, uh, you by, impo- by trying to apply mercy, mercy ends up being a force for disorder. And I think every time you have a bad theory of mercy, it'll eventually reveal itself. As I think I talk about in the book, about the crime waves of the 60s and 70s were in part because of bad theories of uh, punishment. If they had better theories of mercy, they they would have had more order. So the fact that they had a bad order reflects they have a bad theory of mercy.
2: So if one of the problems uh, is that mercy is sometimes seen as being synonymous with being nice or being lenient, Um, how can we see, for instance, to argue against that? punishment, being merciful.
0: Well, um, to start with, punishment very often has as its goal, you put someone in jail so that when they get out of jail, they'll behave well. right? They'll be law-abiding citizens. That's one of our goals in punishment, uh, is that after you punish, their person is better. Another one of our goals of punishment, of course, is to make sure the person doesn't commit a crime. We've identified the right person, so we, I say, incapacitate them as a way of kind of defending ourselves from, the, we know they can commit crime, they just committed a crime, so now we put them in uh, some sort of way. It can be, you know, punishment It also involves parents to children. Like, you put send someone to their room, you've, for the moment, kept them from beating up their brother. But then you also hope that as they cool down or as they think about what they've done, uh, that they somehow change and become better. And so there's a medicinal quality to uh, punishment that this is, this is, again, traditional language in the church. Where punishment takes someone whose will is is wrong and makes it better, um, convinces them, converts them to wanting to be uh, a law-abiding citizen. In the case of civil punishment, or a um, a saint in the case of the church, where sometimes you give someone a penance so that they can they can grow.
1: On uh, punishment, uh, that was the one place where I had a couple of quibbles. I I, I think we agree on these things, Father Maloney, but. I want to emphasize some things more, and you talked about, for example, just now, the the medicinal aspect of punishment, trying to heal the person, make him a better citizen, so on, and also the deterrent function, where you try and prevent him from harming others. But neither this medicinal nor the deterrent function uh, can be justified unless the person is guilty of something, and, correct? And therefore, he's going to get his just desserts or his retribution. So, uh, without the retributive access of punishment, you can't justify the medicinal or the deterrent parts. And therefore, it's always moral to punish someone to have retribution, not as vengeance, but as the proper compensation for the harm to society and to the just order which has been uh, brought about by the criminal. Anyway, I, that's, You don't deny that at all in your book? Uh, It's just something I would want to emphasize as we discuss it. That's all.
0: I'll just say that that in the book, I criticize uh, one account of retribution. There are lots of different ways that word gets used. And so I criticize one account, that which is associated with Immanuel Kant as sort of an extreme example, uh, where he says that retribution is a duty. Like, so if someone's guilty, you have to punish them. You have no options to do otherwise, even if it has no effect or it's bad effects on the common good. Then you have to punish somebody. That's what Kant says, and I think, and that's that's the where retribution just is punishment. Like, you, and if that were the case, mercy would be impossible. Otherwise, so if you if you move off that theory, uh, you end up with the idea that yeah, you have to find it, You have to punish the guilty person. Can't just punish a scapegoat. And you uh, have to punish somebody who is, you know, th- there should be some sort of goal in your punishing. Uh, and one of the, um, if it fit, if the punishment fits the crime, which is one of the slogans for retribution, that often is a great way to teach. Do this with a kid, you know, you hit your brother, so therefore, um, you know, or when you take steal something from your brother, maybe we should take that back from you and to punish you that way. Or if you miss your late out for a curfew, you get grounded. You, you know, having a punishment that fits the crime is one of the best ways to educate somebody.
1: I think therefore the, the extreme case, the limit case in this versus capital punishment, and according to what you just said, and in the book, there you have a it's not unjust to apply a capital punishment for a capital crime, but you're not required to do so in a cantion sense. You don't you don't have to punish every crime to the full extent of what that crime deserves. And that that's where the prudence comes in, it seems to me. Uh, that we you cannot say that capital punishment is intrinsically immoral, uh, but you also cannot say it's required of a capital crime. I mean, to me, that, that makes sense. Would you would, would that be a legitimate uh, formulation of this?
0: Yeah, but I'd go even one step further and say that um, because sometimes when people talk about mercy and punishment, one of the objections I point out uh, is that if mercy and justice are opposed to each other, then, then you might say that, well, sometimes we apply justice and then other times we apply mercy and the problem with that is that you need to have a uh, good reason to apply mercy otherwise mercy is just arbitrary classic example of arbitrary mercy is Pilate, when he says you know I'll, I'll release one of these two prisoners you know which one he doesn't you know he he, he wants it to be jesus maybe for certain reasons but he basically doesn't he, there's you know the the more popular one is the one who gets released that's not a good reason for showing mercy And so you have to have a, good. so basically you can't just say prudence uh, is the reason to show mercy. You have to give a reason for it. And that's why I say the common good, uh, the order of society, that's the reason that you show mercy. So the reason you punish is to have order in society in the future. The reason that you uh, show mercy is to have order in society in, in the future. So that order in society helps us to sort of say, okay, this is when we, uh, apply the law perfectly. This is when we use some of the loopholes in the law. This is when we, but whatever we're doing, we're doing it with the goal of order tomorrow. That's the thing. So if with capital punishment, you say, hey, look, what's our goal in punish capital punishment? One answer is to make sure that this person doesn't commit that heinous crime ever again. Another reason might be um, like, think of the Saddam Hussein situation. If you put Saddam Hussein in a prison, all the terrorists in the world would have come to break him out. So maybe you have to kill him to protect society for that reason something like that. But those would be, you have to have a reason for doing capital punishment oh, and, right. and the reason, and for any punishment, you have to have a good reason for why you're doing what you're doing. And order in society going forward is the, is the thing that I think we have to, it balances, uh, puts mercy in a, in a rational framework.
1: Well, I thought that was a very important point you made from the very beginning of the book that justice uh, is a, a social reality that it, it starts with kings and with, with rulers and so on. And, and and mercy, excuse me, is, is that reality that's meant to uh, work for the common good. And therefore, that's your that's your measure of mercy, is what's good for the person, but what, what's also good for the whole society. But Vivian, you, we, we don't want to leave you in the in the shadow here. So please, if you have any comments, we're happy to I, hear them. I,
3: I do. Um, thank you. I found Father's definition of mercy very helpful for clarifying this relationship between mercy and justice. And the definition he gave that mercy is something restorative, that there has to be some defect or privation that needs to be filled. And this is what mercy is. So now, if you look at a person who breaks the law, as suffering some kind of privation, then the punishment should be accorded to what that person actually needs, not only to uh, compensate for the guilt that is there and the harm that's been done, but also to try to restore that person to the way that that person ought to be. Now, I I think that this is really hard for us to do uh, in a society because we don't always read correctly what that privation is. And so that example that you gave, Father, of the sex offense uh, Mm. clergy problem, you know, there was a misreading of what these violators actually needed. It it was thought that what they needed was therapy and psychoanalysis and any number of other things. Uh, And look at the damage that a misreading of what a person actually needs can do. Um, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to remarry justice and mercy by understanding mercy in this way. I think your book was very helpful in, in revealing that.
1: Uh, Father Maloney, well, I you. got really interested when I got to the acknowledgments because I don't know if our paths have crossed, but I don't think we've spent much for sure. I mean, my memory is bad, but we haven't really had much, if any, correspondence or, or conversations So I was interested in learning about the path by which you ended up writing this particular book. And maybe for the people watching and listening, you can tell us what got you interested in mercy in the first place. And how did did your knowledge and understanding of mercy develop over time?
0: I guess I started talking about thinking about mercy uh, back in graduate school. Uh, when I I ended up writing my dissertation on the topic of mercy, and some of the parts of the book are... <clears throat> um, be, began, I guess, there. Uh, and I started thinking about it because I was actually interested in, in how to talk about the relationship between divine justice and practical politics and justice. Um, and uh, I realized that one of the, the in the ancient framework, the ancient medieval framework, the way of looking at justice, uh, the counterpart to it was mercy. In today's framework, when we talk about the counterpart to justice, we use tolerance. And tolerance and mercy are, do some of the same work. I even have a little bit in the book about some of the history of that. But, but tolerance is different. Tolerance to, to is part of justice, the way people talk about it. So anyway, so, the, so my I was started thinking about the relationship between how things are today and how they, uh, and and realize that we don't have a concept of mercy, um, except in religion, and uh, even then that sort of gets weird. Um, and so I. I I, so both as a uh, just an intellectual trying to figure out how concepts work in philosophy, uh, thinking about politics, thinking about the way things are today, and then when I uh, entered the seminary and became a priest, um, I you know found it really helpful to have all this stuff I thought about and read about mercy because it's, I'm preaching it, I'm putting it into practice in uh, the sacrament of confession, and I'm a big fan of Saint Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, who wrote a great treatise on mercy, just saying, talking about God's justice and God's mercy and why God had to become man, um, and uh, having a um, just so sort of thinking about uh, Easter and thinking about Good Friday and all those sort of theological things, as well as thinking about I had this whole just um, set of interest that grew out of uh, thinking about mercy as a as an interesting philosophical problem, and then walking around life uh, and realizing how much we need it.
1: You know, I was uh, struck years ago, I was in Rome doing something or other, and we drove by this building, uh, and I looked up, and it says something like, Ministerio di Justicia e Grazia. It's the Ministry of Justice <laughs> and Grace. So the, apparently that was uh, kind of a, an echo of the, or, the earlier tradition, you know, that you can't have this justice without some grace as well. Joseph.
2: Can, can I ask a question? I know there's a delay, but c- yeah, can I ask a question?
1: You already did, so why not do a second one?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think of a practical example of how mercy serves justice um, in, 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 in my own country's recent history with the Good Friday Agreement. Now, a part of that Good Friday Agreement were terrorists, on both sides of the war, if you want to call it the loyalist side and the republican side, were basically given amnesties. So, in justice, the people who had murdered, blown people up, and received life sentences, in order to serve the common good, which is to actually um, have a achieve peace in Northern Ireland, obviously serves the common good, which is justice. Um, that the, those those um, tests on both sides of the of the divide were shown mercy as a means of bringing about justice, even if it actually seems to, and I think it seems to, but this is why I'm asking the question, contradict the initial sentence which gave them, for instance, life sentences. That uh,
0: that's a, a great example of uh, of saying, okay, well, making tomorrow better means that we will, we might have to sort of say that what you what you crime that you committed will be not exactly forgiven, right? It's not that we say you didn't commit the crime, but for the sake of peace, we will uh, move on. Um, an, a similar example, I think an inspiration for the way that uh, the, the Accords in, in Ireland uh, happened in South Africa with the apartheid, where they had Bishop Desmond Tutu uh, was part of or, taking a uh, combination of Christian notions of mercy, uh, combining it with certain uh, tribal practices that were common in the among the tribes that were involved in the South African apartheid, and uh, said and put together the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, which held which uh, said, "Hey, look, you know uh, what we're going to do is ask everyone who on both sides of this conflict who's committed committed crimes uh, to, especially the, the the government, the apartheid government, and we want you just to sort of say the truth, tell us what you did." Uh, so, and everything that you confess you won't be punished for but it just gets all the it uncovers the lies and gets all that out there and then there won't be any official punishment you'll have to live among these people for the rest of your life but any apologies you make will be informal any but there'll be no retribution on the part of the state towards what you did will just be but this is and and by doing that rather than having these reprisals uh south africa was able to move on very quickly to a peaceful um post-apartheid government.
1: I'm thinking that we could use that in the United States today, a truth and reconciliation commission where everybody actually told the truth and we'd forgive each other, but I, I'm not waiting for that to happen. Let's give any, anybody who wants to make a further comment, fine, and then we will wrap up the session. Vivian, any final thoughts?
3: No, I just want to thank Father Maloney again for writing this book because it really taught me a lot and made me think about mercy in ways I'd never thought about it before, yeah. in terms of its social aspects. And uh, it's, it's a very important book. I hope more people read it.
1: Well, we'll do our best to make that happen. Joseph, do you have any final thoughts? I won't ask for feelings.
2: <laughs> I, I, I would like to thank Father Maloney as well. It's it's a book and a much needed one. We do live in an age of intolerant tolerance. Um, We've seen that display this week with the riots around the country. Um, so I think a book which actually unites mercy to reason uh, is is essential in this day and age. So I want to thank you for writing the book. Father well, Maloney? Well, first of all, thank you for having
0: me here and saying all these nice things about my book. <laughs> um, it's been really uh, it's been remarkable. Um, yeah, I just hope that uh, more and more people will, um, Aspire to, you know, realize that mercy is a commandment from Jesus, uh, to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Um, and then just to, to sort of wreck then take seriously, like, okay, well, I have to, mercy has to be something smart and practical and leads me to holiness. And I need to do everything I can to overcome my anger and look at the world with Jesus's merciful heart or merciful eyes.
1: Well... Thank you for writing the book, and I think it's one of our joys here at Ignatius Press is that uh, we publish, that I say we make public what others produce, you know, with God's gifts and their talents, and it's a great thing for us. It's been joy all these years, and uh, Joseph is one of our authors too, to have people all over the country, around the world, who's been given gifts, uh, talents, uh, abilities to to Perceive to see and to express it, to help other people, to provide spiritual nourishment. So thank you for that. Uh, next week on the Forum Book Club, we're going to just have a one-week session on this wonderful little novella called Silent Angel, uh, which is based on true documentation about the genocide in Armenia, but it this brings it really home. And following that, we'll begin discussing Time to Die by Nicolas Dia, which is his interview with m- monks at seven monasteries in uh, France about their thoughts of, of facing death. So pretty good things coming up. Uh, thank you for joining us this week, and we'll see to you later. To receive email updates, show. study questions, and free access to our online forum, just visit formedbookclub.ignatius.com.
3: Thanks for joining us.